I'm Abby Kenny, and you're listening to Upzone. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney and joined with me today is our regular co-host, my friend, Chuck Marone, author and founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back, Chuck. Hey, Abby. Working a little remotely today. The sound quality may be a little bit different, but having a kid's day today. I'm taking kids to dance and uh, trying to, uh, you know, keep a household running. I think people grasp that by now, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Not bad for a Friday afternoon. Not bad. So today's article was published in a blog called Slow Boring by Matthew Iglesias, who was recently on your podcast. The title of this article is The Induced Demand Case Against Yimbyism is Wrong. So for listeners who may not be aware of the term Yimby, it stands for Yes in My Backyard. The Yimby movement was created, I believe, as a response to the NIMBY movement, which stands for Not in My Backyard. Put simply, the term NIMBY refers to communities that are generally opposed to any and all new development often arguing for the preservation of neighborhood character above all other needs and values. Arguing against the NIMBY movement, YIMBYs provide many arguments about why new development should be encouraged in communities, including the idea that increasing housing supply will typically drive down costs over time. This article responds to a criticism of the Yimby movement that claims new real estate development actually causes gentrification through a kind of induced demand phenomenon. So new buildings go up, the surrounding area becomes less affordable as a result, especially if the new buildings are replacing older, more affordable housing stock. So opponents claim that new development of market rate housing has a price ripple effect on surrounding neighborhoods, driving up rents and increasing the burden on lower income households. Iglesias says that this is empirically false and a wildly illogical uh, objection to housing abundance. Based on a number of research papers that he cites, he concludes that new units reduce prices, even on a very localized scale. So this was an interesting article to me because I hear both arguments quite often in the housing advocacy world. Because I'm not an expert on the subject, I'm kind of hesitant to subscribe to one camp or the other. But I do think that Matthew makes some really strong points. And I tend to believe that building new housing couldn't hurt in most places, especially if new housing is replacing a vacant lot. So Chuck, how do you see strong towns aligning with the Yimby movement and the arguments that are being proposed here? It's a really good question because from the very beginning, when I first heard the term Yimby, I'm like, that's what I am. That is a core of what strong towns is. It's like, let's remove the barriers to build the next increment of development. Let's, let's get out there and build. Our city should not be stagnant places. They should not be places where neighborhoods are put under glass and, and protected 
you know, frozen in amber and shall never change. They, they need to change. They need to evolve. They need to uh, adapt. And so I'm like, yes, I'm, a, I am a Yimby. Like that is what I am. Like I'm part of this group. And then, you know, there was all this pushback on, well, you know, gentrification and, and basically like we need to do away with it, and these investments because they're dislocating people. And I'm sympathetic to, you know, what's going on on the ground, but I always thought, okay, but the opposite of that is the disinvestment. It's, it's walking away from neighborhoods. It's neglecting places. And, and clearly like neighborhoods need investment. They need uh, this redevelopment. They need this natural uh, cycle of rejuvenation. And if you starve them of capital, they're not going to get that. Then I started to get weird pushback from people who identified as Yimby, like I am a Yimby. And the crazy thing was a lot of it was, I'm going to call it like a fetish or a love of the large. They, they were against strong towns. And they actually called me a NIMBY, like an anti-growth, anti-development person, because I didn't think tearing down single family homes and putting in six story condo units was a, a good thing. I didn't think that like that actually solved anything. So I think we should dig into this, but I want to start with one thing you said in quoting Matt. Um, you know, Matt says in his article, he says that building more units, I can't remember how exactly you put it, but you talk, you, you actually said the phrase lower prices or lower, make things more affordable. And the reality is, and I think this is where the critics that Matt is going after actually have it right. You can't point to anywhere in the market today where prices are going down or where building more has actually lowered prices. It's not happened. You, you can say today that prices are going down because the very high end froth is being taken off the market. And so there's some like equilibrate, you know, but you, you can't say that building more has actually reduced prices. It's not happened. And I think there's a lot of reasons why it hasn't happened, but as like a, a view of what's going on, that's not an unreasonable criticism. And I think you would call that induced gentrification or induced that there's a latent demand there that we're a long ways from meeting. And so building more does respond to a market demand, but it doesn't reduce prices. It's not today. And I think to follow that route, we'd have to go a lot further down the road. Let's talk about that. I think Matt is right, but I don't think he's completely right here. New construction is very expensive. And there's a lot of reasons that new construction is very expensive. And those conditions can't necessarily be managed at a local scale. So I think that's an important point. I, I think the author does a good job at framing what Yimbyism as a movement is all about as he defines it, because a lot of people mischaracterize it as people who are kind of protecting the, in quotes, evil capitalist developers. And he pushes back on that. He says, no, this is about promoting a systematic approach to making decisions about housing policy, regional abundance, creating a construction boom that makes the developer a less relevant player. He mentions that many larger developers have developed this entire market niche around their expertise in navigating onerous and political permitting processes, which ultimately drives housing costs up and shut small-scale local developers out of the market. He instead proposes this buy-right approach to housing regulation, meaning that it is much 
it would be much more simple and straightforward to build something. And when framed that way, ultimately advocating for a development game that isn't limited to the wealthiest or most connected players, I'm totally for it. To me, I'm like that supports incremental developers, that supports building a city built by many hands, doing small things, building to the next increment. So in that regard, I'm all for it. And at the same time, I also recognize that typically no new housing is going to be affordable without subsidy. And if someone out there who is listening has figured out how to build new market rate housing at an affordable price point, please let me know because that's the million dollar predicament that I think we're all faced with in this kind of discussion. I think promoting development of new housing is generally good and we should definitely increase supply whenever possible. But I would never personally promise that a build, build, build strategy is alone a solution to affordability. I think that we need to diversify housing options, including allowing existing housing stock to be flexible to include accessory dwelling units or splitting a house into two units based on whatever is demanded, whatever people need to do. That is much more affordable than building a brand new building. Using existing housing stock and retrofitting it can deliver that at a lower price point. I think we ought to simplify zoning regulations as much as possible. My mantra being that you shouldn't need to hire an attorney to use your property. I think we ought to be expanding availability of public housing and address issues related to poverty. And I think that we ought to be addressing that issue of displacement more directly, and particularly the displacement caused by taxes going up. There's no reason that we as a society shouldn't be able to address that. So there's all these kinds of discussions that come into this where I would never recommend that, you know, if you just build a bunch of housing that you are automatically going to get affordability. That alone is not an affordable housing strategy, but I also don't think that simply not having any growth or change is a viable option either. Before we got on this podcast, I spent an hour on the phone with a journalist who called to ask me about a program they had in that they're proposing in their city that would require developers to build 20% affordable units with all new you know, projects. And, and the advocates are saying this will create a bunch more units. The critics are saying, you know, this is a smaller town in, in Connecticut that, you know, it's just going to displace a bunch of people, build a bunch of out of scale buildings and really not solve the problem. It's hard for me not to agree with the critics in this case, even though I agree with the, the goal of the activists, the goal of the people who want this change to get housing more affordable and get more people into housing. I think she went to call me and, and thought this interview would take 10 minutes. and We were on the phone for a, almost a whole hour. And I think that shows you just how complex this problem is. It's a, it's a wicked problem, as my colleague Daniel has said, uh, you know, in terms of defining it, because it, it really, you know, so much of what we talk about is dealing with the symptoms. Why is housing not affordable? You even said you can't build housing today for what people can afford. It's, it's too expensive. Show me how you would build housing cheaper. And w- when I delve into that question, I, I wind up like, you know, almost rejecting the premise. Like, why does, 
Why does it have to be expensive to build? Why have we created this system the way we have? And a big part of what I have concluded, and it it frustrates the Yimbis and it frustrates the Nimbis and it frustrates everybody in between, is that we've done two major things that I think are really destructive. The first is we have created a feedback loop where property values cannot reflect a market price or people's capacity or ability to pay. Because if they did, that would mean prices would have to drop in a large way, and that would destroy local government budgets, it would destroy household budgets, it would destroy the banking system and the financial sector, it would destroy pension funds, and hedge funds would blow up, and and it would be Armageddon economically for the world. We put ourselves in this box, in this trap, where we can say all day long we want affordable housing. We can say all day long that we wish more people could get in housing and we want housing to be affordable. Yet we've created a system where every single financial incentive goes against that outcome. Once you recognize that and once you realize that, you kind of start to get into this idea that like this is all just not only dealing with symptoms, but it's all just talk. It's all just, you know, little things around the margins. And, and, you know, God bless the people working in the trenches around the margins trying to get, you know, this family into an affordable house and that family into an affordable house. But, you know, we are in this pandemic that is having these massive economic consequences. You have vastly more people today that can't afford housing than any system on the table will, will ever solve. And this is, I think, the second insight, which is, the way we have approached solving this problem is very suburban experiment type of approach. It's, it's leaning into the efficiency of big players and big markets and big transactions. And so our solutions all get wrapped up in, let's build this big condo unit or let's build this big development. The Yimbis can argue correctly that we have such a huge problem. We have to build that scale. If we don't go out and do this in a big, big way, we're not taking the problem seriously. And they're right. And the critics of that can correctly argue that when we build this stuff, the latent demand is so huge and the built, the built in demand is so huge that it's actually not lowering prices. And they are right. I get back to the idea that the, the fundamental problem here, Abby, is the scale at what we're working at. It's, it's, it's the idea that everything has to be done in a big scale because that's crowding out the, the thousand hands that could work on this. The, the, the many, many people that are kind of being shunned aside by our current system that could be out hanging sheetrock and putting up insulation and fixing up houses and converting things into duplexes and adding carriage units and doing stuff that actually would create affordable housing. They're put to the sidelines because they don't fit this big top down one size fits all move like a slow giant kind of scale. And and I don't think we solve it the way Matt thinks we solve it. It certainly doesn't hurt to build these projects and supply that that demand in the market. But the lowest price point that I know of in my own community that is being developed right now are being done through incremental developers. They are buying property that have sat vacant for many, many years, and they are rehabilitating those properties 
into homes that can be afforded at a price point that is much, much, much lower than than anything that is being brought to market today. So I think that is a really good point, and it speaks to the preservation argument because – Can I disagree slightly? Yeah. I think that Daniel – our colleague Daniel would disagree with me on this. So let me let me be fair that I think you know you are on the side or or, or what you've said I think is is probably the the dominant viewpoint and I may be very wrong but you, you said you know building these units going in and building more stuff is not actually going to hurt like there's there's no downside to that it's adding more units in a marketplace it's actually going to work out better and I get the empirical case for that it's kind of a supply-demand case. If demand is X and supply is half of X, if you build 0.6 of X, you know, if you start to get 60% of X, you're actually, you know, getting closer to an equilibrium price like that. That makes sense in like a static model. I, I get that empirical case. What I'm saying is that the way we've gone about doing this, you know, the scale at which we work has actually done two things. It's it's artificially elevated underlying land values and property values in a way that then on the second hand crowds out and stagnates the rest of the environment. We don't have a system in a real functioning economy, in a housing market that really works. You would have some big players, yes, and they would be part of the mix, but you would also have mid-sized and small players and you'd have a lot of, it'd be like a pyramid. You'd have a few big players. You would have a a lot of mid-sized players And then you would have a ton of little players, like a ton of little people out, you know, building the carriage house and doing the duplex and doing right now you have the inverse of that. You have very few small players and they're very few. And we highlight them like we we show them each market has a tiny bit of this and they should be flooded with them. You have a handful of midsize players and they tend to get crowded out and pushed around and abused, um, but they make a living. They get a niche. They ride it. You have a number of big players who are essentially market makers who, who move the market and work in these big steps. And they operate very much like big banks in that they don't take risks. They ensure that there's always going to be more demand than supply because that keeps their business model going. And they're very happy with the current system because it works and it cash flows for them. I think that is a broken market that I don't think the YIMBY conversation fully acknowledges, addresses, or, or, or even is prepared to understand it. It's, it's not as simple as just build more. This system is not working and just pouring more money into it or, or, or demanding, you know, easier regulations or quicker approvals. Okay. Fine. Like, I don't think that hurts necessarily. I don't think that helps. And it, in some ways it does kind of hurt because it does have this crowding out effect. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it's an interesting point to bring up, you know, as I'm looking out my window at a vacant building in my neighborhood and down the street, we have huge projects that are being built that are going to be at a much higher price point than this building eventually when it's rehabbed and it will be (laughs) when it has apartments in it. It's just interesting that, that we do focus on these large scale projects. I agree that they shouldn't be the primary source of housing. And that's really, we're getting housing through these giant projects these days. And that's how it's been, I guess, for a really long time. And we ought to be having way more small scale developers because 
the people in Kansas City that I know who are who are doing small projects are able to provide the lowest price point I know of without subsidy. And a lot of the times these large projects are getting subsidies and they're still double the cost in rent that is being provided by these people simply rehabbing buildings. And we have tons of empty buildings. So it is a little frustrating that that these little buildings don't get the attention that they need and they they have the structural integrity of buildings like these. This is kind of where my preservation side comes in. I, I think that we ought to be investing in those buildings and we ought to be preserving them, especially if they are providing a lower price point than these brand new market rate, large scale development projects. Because I think that if you have a neighborhood of of homes that, you know, maybe they're single family homes, they've been rehabbed, you can rent them for $600 a month, replacing them with a brand new block size market rate condo building is not a good thing. I mean, we ought to be sustaining the lower price points that we have. And what ultimately is important is to have a diversity of price points. Like if you think of your city as having a housing portfolio, it's important to hit lots of different price points. When I got off the phone with this reporter, the last kind of thing we talked about was what what should cities do? And when I think of like your city, Kansas City, I don't think there's any question that if we go to the core downtown and we look at the marketplace there, that, that's not a place for small developers, right? That's not a place for like the incremental developer. You're going to have large players in that system and they're going to be investing large amounts of money and building very large buildings. Uh, but if we go out six blocks from there, eight blocks from there, a mile from that core, you should not have large developers working in those areas. It's not a place for large inflows of capital. You should have hundreds, thousand, maybe small developers working incrementally throughout those neighborhoods. And if, if you're a city, the idea should be that the regulatory burdens for getting that going, the, the system, the process, the way you approach things, if you can work with local banks, the financing of that, if you have incentives, the incentive structures should be scaled to that very small develop, that very small incremental step. And you should actually not allow or not have the, the large players in there distorting your market. It's, it's a little like trying to garden and uh, having an elephant come through it and just trash the whole thing. It's not a garden where you're going to get feedback, where you're going to get things growing and, 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 and responding to the nutrients and the sunlight and the, the water. You're just going to get trampled and you're going to get whatever weeds can survive the elephant trampling. I think we have to look at the markets we're trying to build at the local level as more like building a garden and really kind of protect it in a sense from the elephant that's going to come in and trample it and, and make it so it doesn't work. There's a part of that statement that makes like, this is why I said everybody gets mad at me because the NIMBYs don't like it because I'm saying their neighborhoods have to change. The YIMBYs don't like it because they're saying, because I'm saying it needs to be incremental. It shouldn't be overwhelming. You shouldn't just build you know, condo units everywhere. The market urbanists don't like it because I'm saying like, if you want a real market, you have to actually protect it from the, the, the effects that are distorting it. And they look at the distorting effects as being the marketplace. So I kind of find that we at Strong Towns tend to end up in this very weird space when it comes to housing because we're focusing on the actual people that are getting screwed in this whole system. 
and how we actually deal with um, not necessarily like what gets them to tomorrow. I, I think the activists on the ground, like I said, are doing God's work trying to help get people into housing and incrementally get this here and there and make it make the system work. But how do we create a system that responds to the actual needs of people on the ground? And it's not the system we have now, and it's not a small derivation of it. Well, I think it comes down to enabling a system that builds cities with many hands. I, I know I keep saying that, but I, I really think it is about decentralizing the development game, that whole world shouldn't be just for the the large scale professional players that there should be people who are incrementally adding to their neighborhood improving their neighborhood doing small projects that's the kind of world i would like to live in where people have ownership people can build wealth at the local level and provide housing that way and i i think to people who are more interested in kind of managing outcomes, that is um, not really an acceptable answer. But to me, it, it is a bit frustrating when we talk about managing outcomes, like trying to control price points on the other end, while also severely restricting who can be a developer, right? So if you need to hire an architect and an attorney and all these professionals and you need to have you know, $20,000, $50,000 to get a building permit for something, it seems really disingenuous to then turn around and try to micromanage the price point of housing. It's a complicated system and hopefully, hopefully at some point we can get out of our own ways <laughs> in a lot of ways. It seems that that often is the problem. Yeah. If I had to summarize it, I feel like the more we can localize the feedback loops, the better we're going to be. The more that we're responding to the macro incentives of capital flows, the big project, how do we goose GDP the next quarter? How do we goose corporate profits? How do we, you know, the, the, the more that that drives our market, the more screwed up and patronizing our market will be. The more that we can localize the market so it's actually responsive to people on the ground. Yes, that's going to be some painful feedback loops at times, particularly in the short term. But I think the more our market will actually reflect, the housing market will actually reflect the needs of people in the community. You know what that's called? What? Skin in the game. Skin in the game, baby. Yeah, skin <laughs> in the game. We need more skin in the game in this world. So, so you've been reading your Taleb. Yeah, I finished it. That's yeah, fin finished the book. Um, I recommend it. It's a good one. So we're going a little bit long today. I feel like we typically do with the housing discussions. We could have an entire podcast series just on housing, and it still wouldn't satisfy the, the problem, probably. So we are going to end on that note. But before I let you go today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been reading, listening to, watching. Chuck, what have you been up to? I don't know if I brought this up last week. I don't think I did. I apologize if I did, but I, I started a book by Seneca called On the Shortness of Time. It's a beautiful little book. I mean, I'm almost done with it. It's, it is a short book. <laughs> it is basically about how the thing that we are most blasé often about wasting is time. 
Um, but it's the thing that like we truly squander at our peril. It's, it's the thing that, you know, rich people and poor people, regardless of, of, you know, your status, regardless of your, uh, position in life, it's, it's something we're all allocated somewhat equally. I mean, some of us have short lives and some of us have long lives, but we spend each second the exact same in terms of the way that the duration of time takes place. And Seneca is a stoic and it's a, it's a stoic kind of book and that kind of fits me. I like it, but I've also just found it, you know, particularly in the, the winter time of year here, a, a good, um, a good reminder. And I, I highly recommend it to people. It's a quick read. Hmm. That sounds really pretty nice. Let me read you a, just a quick quote. A man who dares waste an hour of time has not discovered the value of his life. Wasting time is something that we should also do with intention. You know, the idea that on the shortness of time, like Seneca would say, never spend a day just walking through the park wasting time or or an idle thought. I think he would say do it, but do it with intention, right? Like I'm going to waste this day. I'm going to I'm going to spend this time in idleness and I'm going to actually suck it up, like really enjoy that moment. It's a beautiful book. That's something that I struggle with is to be able to be idle in an intentional way. I am I am the type of person who cannot sit still. I mean, I've told you the many books that I've read, I often listen to because I I cannot sit still. You know, it's very challenging for me to do that. So I, I I'm constantly moving. I tried to meditate a little bit this year, but it's it's hard to to just be idle in an intentional way. But it is because I always feel like I'm wasting time if I'm like sitting down. Yeah. And and I think, you know, Seneca would say when you're active, you know, try to get the most be the most productive, get the most out of that. And when you're idle, get the most out of that. I, I, I look at the antithesis of what he's saying as being the person who sits down and just flips through TV channels, you know, hoping to catch something. That's fine too. Like sometimes you do that, but if you're doing that, do it with intention. Like, right. Like I'm, I am going to waste and enjoy wasting this time. Uh, I'm not just going to, you know, six hours later go, what did I do? Yeah, that's a good point. And that's, I, I feel like for my generation, it's like social media. We waste a lot of time doing that and, and not with much intention most of the time. Yes. So I guess I have a show to share this week and it's a show that I don't have to explain to anybody. We just started re-watching Breaking Bad, which I think I finished like five years ago. So I don't remember like any of it. And we just started watching it the other night because it's cold out and we're trying to find something to watch. We don't really watch a lot of TV, but... Breaking Bad is like the best show ever made, perhaps. I forgot how good it is. I have heard this and I've never watched it. Um, what? No, I've never I've never watched it. I think I watched one episode, like the pilot or the first one, and I'm like, eh, you know. But I did that with the first episode of The Wire too, and then I I watched The Wire like three times, like every episode. It's to me that was the best show ever made. Besides Sherlock, Sherlock's my favorite ever. Uh, you still haven't watched that yet, have you? I know. Thank you for reminding me. Maybe, maybe I'll I'll watch the pilot of that. But since you haven't seen Breaking Bad, I recommend that you go back and watch that. And I will let you know that it's very family friendly. 
Oh, really? In your family-friendly kind of way or my family-friendly kind of way? My family-friendly Okay, because we've way. been down this road before, and, and you <laughs> recommended some shows that were not really appropriate for my children, but, you know. I know, they, I'm they, kidding. They, don't I've don't got share them with your children. They're, they're in therapy now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't listen to me. It's not family friendly. Don't don't watch Breaking Bad as as like a family a family activity. It's not not a good thing. It is a great show though, so you should definitely recommend. I, I would definitely recommend that you watch it at some point in your life. I will life. put it on my list. I will. Yes. Yeah. Maybe we can have a list. thing where um you'll watch Sherlock and I'll watch Breaking Bad and then we'll we'll discuss. Yeah, we can like start a Breaking Bad Sherlock watch club. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. Okay. Thanks, Abby. Well, that sounds good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Chuck. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. You take care. Bye.